Well, today we, we are uh, going to be concluding our series that we have been calling Cow Tipping. And, and in this series, we've been looking at some of the different sacred cows that, that we have. I like the cowbell there, Eric. <laughs> in our Cow Tipping series. <laughs> The, the different sacred cows that, that we all have in, in our lives, some of those golden calves that we have created and set up. And, and, and every one of us, we have different idols. We have different things that we've put in our lives that, that end up getting, getting elevated to a place higher than they really ought to be in our lives. And, and that's the danger of, of sacred cows because oftentimes a sacred cow, a golden calf, can actually take the place of God in, in our lives. When, when we think about it, and we, we talked about this in week one, that the story of the Israelites creating the golden calf while Moses was up on Mount Sinai, they, it, was, it was a substitute for God. If you remember the text, they even said, all right, this is the God who led us out of Egypt. And in the series, we've talked about the, the sacred cow of, of self, about the, the Christian consumerism that, that has infected so much of the church today. Last week, we talked about the golden calf of busyness. You know, that, that for so many of us, we view our, our, our busy schedule as, as, in a way as a badge of honor, that, that if we don't feel like we're being productive, we, we don't feel good about ourselves, and, and how busyness can actually lead us away from the mission that God has called us to do, which is to love Him and to love other people. Because to love God and to love others well, we can't do it if we're in a rush. We can't do it if we're over, overscheduled, if we're overbooked and overcommitted. And, and if we're going to be the people that God has called us to be, we need to be able to, to take a moment to, to be in, to be present in the moment, to be able to eliminate some of those things that are not important. And, and I hope that you, you prayed that prayer that we talked about at the end of service last week of, Lord, help me just to walk slowly enough to be able to experience you fully and to love your people deeply. And so today we're going to take a look at a, at, a, at a topic that's a little bit difficult to define, but it's actually something that can be extremely detrimental within the church if we are not careful. Now, now how many of you watched the Super Bowl last week? How, like, just a show of hands. All right, a, a, a decent number of people watched watch the Super Bowl last week. And, and there, there's, there's a lot of people that have, like, Super Bowl traditions where they get together at the same house to watch the game every year. They get together with the same people. They have the, you know, same foods every year. And, and that's kind of their, their Super Bowl tradition. But, but sports, if you think about it, are filled with all kinds of different traditions, like playing the national anthem before the before the sporting event begins, like that—that's a tradition. There's nothing. There's nothing mandated. We don't have to do that, but it's just something that we traditionally do. One of the things in, in football, and it always just kind of makes me laugh, is the tradition of having the captains come out to the center of the field for the for the coin toss. And, and it, this is just this is not from the the Super Bowl, but this is just a a coin toss. And it always kind of makes me laugh that you need four people to come on out and pick, all right, is it going to be heads or tails? You know, it's just kind of like just a, a, a tradition of, of what happens. But the Super Bowl has some traditions all of its own. Like take the halftime show, for example. Like the, the halftime show has become quite the tradition. Like so this year, Rihanna was the one that was the, the halftime performer this year. Last year was Dr. Dre and, and Snoop. Paul McCartney has done the halftime show before. Bruno Mars has. Prince has played at the, at the halftime show, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Aerosmith. Like, Super Bowl halftime shows have become quite the, the tradition. In fact, there's people that don't even watch the Super Bowl for the game. They watch it so that they can enjoy the halftime show. 
that takes place. I, I actually came across this footage from the NFL championship game in 1958 and what their halftime show was in 1958. Can you show that and video now, for us? They are witnessing a genuine football classic. And even sights such as this can't curb their impatience for the second half to get underway. That, that's for real. Like, I mean, that, that, is, that is riveting entertainment right there. And, and <laughs> the, the halftime show has evolved a little bit since prancing reindeer in the middle of the field. But, but everybody, like, everybody loves traditions, like, including me, including God. Like, God set up all kinds of traditions in the Old Testament for, for his people to follow, for, for his people to, to remember what it is that he said and, and what are the things that God did that he created these, these traditions. And there are traditions all around us. In a couple of weeks, King Charles is, uh, in, in Britain is going to be coronated as, as the new king. And one of the things that happens every year when a monarch is coronated is they sit in, and if you can actually put a picture of the chair, this coronation chair, it's actually called King Edward's chair. And this is just a tradition that, that they have that when the monarch is coronated, they sit down and, and have their crown bestowed on them while they're sitting in King Arthur, or excuse me, King Edward's chair. It was built in around 1297, and every British monarch sits in this exact chair when, they, when they're coronated. Like, and tr like I said, traditions, they can be a great thing. Like, they can draw people together. We can have a shared experience. There's a sense of nostalgia when, when we have a, a tradition that we can always look back fondly on. Oh, remember when we used to always do this. Oh, remember the good old days when this happened. And, and sometimes the good old days weren't all that good, but we can look fondly on them with some of those traditions that we've had. We can kind of keep some of those memories alive with different traditions. And, and there's traditions, obviously, within the church as well. Communion is, is one of them. We, we, like, communion is, is something that Jesus told us to do, but we take here at Livingstones, we take communion every single Sunday. Now, are, are we required to? No. We, you know, we don't have to do it, but we choose to do it as a, as a way of orienting everything we do around Jesus, for us to always focus back on the cross and what it is that Jesus has done for us. And, and so I want you to hear me in, in this this morning and, and not misunderstand me. Like, I'm, I'm not against traditions at all. I, I love traditions. They bring comfort and they bring peace. And many traditions can be extremely good and extremely positive. But... Sometimes traditions, sometimes preferences, they can actually grow in importance and eclipse God and what he has to say. Sometimes if we're not clear, or excuse me, sometimes we have to make a clear distinction between what we are doing in the name of tradition and what we're actually doing in the name of Christ. And Jesus dealt with this often when, when he had confrontations, usually with the religious leaders of the day. And one of those was in Mark chapter 7, where he was confronted by a delegation of experts in the law, that, that they, they had a beef to, to pick with Jesus because Jesus' disciples, they were not washing their hands with this ceremonial washing before they ate. And so in Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 5, it says, So the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law, and you substitute your own tradition." 
you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. And, and at issue here was, was not something that God had taught. It was, it was not something that was, that was scriptural. What it was, was these were rules that were, that were created by the Pharisees. And in fact, they explicitly said, our age-old tradition, the hand-washing ceremony. And so what would happen is rules were often created by, by these religious leaders, by the Jewish leaders at the time, that often superseded what God's commandments actually were, were actually superseding what it was that God actually wanted to do. In the, in the second century A.D., there was a, a, a compilation of, of Jewish oral laws and oral traditions that, that was compiled, and it was called the Mishnah. And, and in, in, this, in, this, in the Mishnah, it talks about these Jewish traditions, what they called to, and this is a direct quotation, it was a fence around the law. It was a fence around the law. And in essence, like traditions, the way that the Jews saw it, it protected God's holy word, and it assisted people in keeping it. It kind of protected the law, and, it, and these traditions helped people in keeping the law. And like many things, the, the, these, the fencing around, around the law, around the Word of God, probably began well enough. But, at, but as years passed, as years passed, it produced some really kind of infamous absurdities. Let, let me give you just a couple of examples of what I mean by that. Like it, so in an effort to, to protect the Sabbath from being broken through inadvertent labor. So because on the Sabbath, nobody was supposed to do any type of work whatsoever. And so in order to protect the Sabbath so that people didn't inadvertently do work on the Sabbath, the Jews were given this, this extensive list of things that were forbidden, these prohibitions that were put on, on what they could and could not do on, on the Sabbath to help them keep the law. And so one, one of those was you couldn't wear false teeth on the Sabbath. Because if the false teeth fell out of your mouth, you would have to bend over and pick them up, and that would be considered work. You, couldn't, you could not carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath, but you could wear it. And so let's say you were upstairs in, in your room, and you wanted to have your handkerchief with you in case you had to blow your nose. You couldn't carry it downstairs with you. You could tie it around your neck. You could tie it to your clothes. And then when you walk downstairs, if you had to blow your nose, you could untie it, blow it, and then tie it back on because you couldn't carry it because carrying the handkerchief was work. Rabbis at the time, they debated, okay, what, what, what do we do with somebody who has a, a, a wooden leg? You know, if, if their house caught fire on the Sabbath, could they carry their wooden leg out of the house or would that be considered work? Like, I, I mean, these, these were legitimate things that they that they that they talked about that the, these rules that they applied. There, there was one where you could spit on the Sabbath, you could spit, but you had to be careful about where you did it because if you spit on the ground and your, and your sandal accidentally scuffed it, you could be cultivating the ground and that was considered work. And so you had to be very careful about where, where you spit on the Sabbath. And, and for many in Jesus' day, the, the, these rituals, these traditions... These man-made rules actually became a substitute for actual relationship with God. And before we kind of get too, too pious and too judgmental about looking at her, what in the world were they thinking? Like, why, why would they do that? Man, how many times do we do that same thing, though? 
Maybe it's not to, that, to the same extent, but we have, we have traditions, we have rituals, we have things in our lives that can often take and substitute and replace actual relationship with God. Like how many times do we kind of evaluate where we are in our spiritual walk and say, all right, you know what, I, I feel like my walk with God is good because I went to church on Sunday, I was faithful in my, my Bible reading plan, I was faithful to pray this week, I gave in the offering, I was moved in worship, and so we, we evaluate or we equate that with whether or not we're, we're in a good place with God, where, where our spiritual walk is, is healthy or not. Like our, our traditions and our customs are good things, like they're good things that we ought to do. But again, if we're not careful, they can become a replacement for actual connection and actual relationship with God. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. And what Paul, what Paul is, he, he's kind of giving this, this admonition, he's giving this warning. He's saying, all right, it, it's so easy to, to start to follow these things that we think are actually going to make us closer to God, these things that make us spiritual. But in the end, he says they actually ensnare us. They actually entrap us. The, the Greek word that Paul uses for tradition, you can, you can write this down, is paradosis. And, and, and paradosis, it, it means tradition, it means a custom, it means, it means dogma. And it's the same word that, that Jesus used when he was addressing the Pharisees in his time. And while many traditions can be good, and they can be comforting, they can also take us captive as well. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Timothy talks about, or excuse me, the, the letter to Timothy, it, it, it talks about having a form of godliness, but in actuality, it denies the true power of God, that, that we can do things that, that make us feel spiritual. We can do things that, that, that seem like they're helping us grow in our walk and grow in our faith, but in actuality, they actually are completely devoid of the power of God that's in them. And this is a sacred cow that we have to be on guard against. It, it, like a, a following tradition and ritual and all that. Again, they can be really good, but we also have to be careful about them. Because, and I want you to write this down if you're taking notes, that church, church traditions can either point us to Christ or they can lead us away from Him. Church traditions can lead us, point us to Christ or lead us away from Him. Now, before, before coming to Living Stones, I was a part of a church, and we took communion roughly about once a quarter, something like that. And, and one of the conversations I had with the elders before we, before we came on board, before we came on board to pastor here, was that I love the idea of taking communion every single week, but what I don't want is I don't want it just to become a meaningless ritual, just something that we do on Sunday morning because, well, it's what we've always done. That there's, a, that there's always going to be a, a meaning to, to why we're doing it each and every week. Be, beginning the service with worship is a tradition. There's nothing that says we have to do that. It's, it's just a tradition. It's something that we do. And, and even good things like worship can actually be something that becomes sacred cows in our lives as well. Because we all have, we all have preferences. We all have songs that we like and songs that move us, and then we have songs that don't. We, we have styles that we like and styles we, do, we don't. We have some people who like hymns, some people like choruses, 
Some people like more modern worship. Some like more uh, 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 traditional worship. Some people are, are, are very con- contemplative in worship. Others are very expressive. And in the end, it's on us to, to check our hearts. It's on, it's on us to allow the Holy Spirit to, to kind of check us and make sure that we're not elevating our preferences and our opinions and our traditions to a place higher than they ought to be. Obviously, there's, there's no problem having preferences. There's no problem having opinions. Like that, that's, that's, what, that's what's beautiful about the body of Christ is that we all have different thoughts and ideas and, and things that move us. Like we're, we're, we're constantly rubbing elbows with people that have different experiences and different thoughts and, and things that, that we want. But in the end, we have, we have to make sure that our, that our hearts are right because if we can only worship when it's songs that we like or, or a beat that we like or a style we like, it's something that we have to pay attention to. It's something we have to, to take before God and say, all right, God, I don't want to elevate this, my tradition and my experience and my preferences and my thoughts, higher than bringing honor and glory to you. Because in the end, man-made traditions, they're supposed to remind us, they're supposed to point us to God, but, but left unchecked, man-made traditions don't actually set us free. They actually bind us, they fence us, they control us. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul writes, he says, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not in the letter, but of, not, excuse me, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit brings life. Like if, if it's not based on, on the Word of God, and if it's not done with the right heart in the right attitude, it actually kills as opposed to bringing life. And, and, and this is one of the things that Jesus often had to push back on. One of, one of the things, that, this, this idea that, that, uh, that our, our traditions, that our religion can do. He pushed back on that often. And, and, and the, the next point I want you to write down if you're taking notes is that tradition can lead to feelings of superiority. Our traditions, if, if we're not careful, they can lead to feelings of superiority. Like, like religion can make us feel pious. It can make us feel superior, better than the next person. We, we think we know what's best, that our opinion is correct. Our tradition demonstrates that we're the ones that are really taking our walk with God seriously. Like if you think about the, the ritualistic hand-washing ceremony that, that the Pharisees were talking to Jesus about in Mark 7. Like they felt, all right, because we're doing this ceremony, we're, we're partaking in this ritual hand-washing, we're better than those that, that are unclean. All right, what is wrong with them? They're not doing this like we do it because they're not taking, they're not taking God serious enough. And this tradition, it began as a reminder that, that they were God's people, that they were set aside by Him, that they were called to be morally clean and upright and, and set apart. But, but this good reminder eventually became an empty ritual that, that resulted in pride and, and religious isolation, this us versus them mentality. And, and there's all kinds of, of church traditions today that lead to that kind of thinking. I've seen people who, who love Jesus talk about how, how their, their experience and their, their tradition and how it makes them stand out over them who don't take it as seriously as they do. And Jesus often confronted this. He often talked about this. In, in Luke chapter 18, verse 10, there's a story that Jesus tells to kind of illustrate this. 
And he says, two men went to the temple to pray, and one was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed this prayer, Lord, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, like cheaters and sinners and adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of my income. Like, I'm doing the, these good things, these traditions, these rituals. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful on me, for I am a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Like, like re religion, tradition, it can make us feel superior to those that maybe aren't living up to what we think they ought to be doing, how they ought to be living. The, th the second thing that religion and tradition can do is that tradition can, can lead, it doesn't always, but it can lead to manipulation. Tradition can lead to manipulation. Going back to Mark chapter 7 and verse 10, it says, then, then Jesus, he's speaking again, and then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God, honor your father and mother. And anyone who speaks dis disrespectfully of father and mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I have given to you. In that way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. The, the fifth commandment said to honor your father and mother. And, and Jesus is saying, All right, part of honoring your father and mother is when, when they're getting old, when they're getting up in years, that you're helping take care of them, that you're providing, that, you, that you're guarding after and, and caring for your parents. And what was happening is the, these religious leaders, they had found this loophole that trumped caring for ailing and aging parents. That, that if you had, all right, I'm setting aside this money, I'm dedicating it to God. And they were saying, all right, if you have this money dedicated and set aside for God, well, then you're off the hook. You don't have to take care of your parents because, well, why, why would you spend money on earthly things that you have already pledged to give to God? And Jesus is saying, you're missing the whole point. You're missing the whole point. Like, as he often did, he called out there, hypocrisy. He said, all right, like you talk a good game about, about honoring your father and mother, but when it comes to actually doing it, you're missing it, and, and you're kind of cloaking it in religious language. You're, try, you're trying to use God as a way of getting out of, of doing the very thing that God was asking you to do. This was a very similar thing that Jesus dealt with when, when he was confronted about healing somebody on the Sabbath. Where people said, All right, you're, you're doing work on the Sabbath. This man who had been paralyzed, who had been crippled since the time he was born. And Jesus healed him, raised, from the, raised, raised him up. And these religious leaders, the, these Pharisees would say, you should not be doing that on the Sabbath. That again, they, they, were, they were missing the whole point. That Sabbath was meant as much as a benefit for people as it was a way to bring glory to God. And the sad reality is that even today, people can use religion and, and tradition as, as a tool of, of manipulation. I, I've seen pastors do this. I've seen pastors that, that use tradition 
excuse me, use religious tradition to coerce people into doing what the leader wants them to do. Sometimes they use guilt or sometimes they use threats or misuse of Scripture to try to get people to do what they want them to do, and that's not leadership. That, that's abuse. And, and Je- Jesus doesn't have very many nice things to say about people that use His name to coerce and manipulate others. Again, traditions are great, but they must not be used as a, as a tool for control or for manipulation. I, I heard it said once, and, and I thought this was just brilliant. I heard it said once that, that every great move of God comes in four stages. And the first one is, and they're using all, all words that start with them, so it's not exclusively like a male thing, but the, but the first thing is that it starts with a man, that God gives somebody a compelling, dynamic, God-given vision. And you think of guys like John Wesley and, and Methodism or William Booth in the Salvation Army, or, or Martin Luther in the Reformation. You have Amy, Amy Semple McPherson in the Foursquare Movement. Like you, you have, God has given them the, this compelling, dynamic vision. And what happens is that it leads to a movement. It starts with a man and it leads to a movement, that, that a denomination or a movement, it starts to gain momentum. It gains influence, it gains numbers and, and results, and, and people jump on board. They're excited about what is happening, and this movement is taking place. But eventually, after a while, the movement can then become a machine, where, where it's still big, it's still influential, but the main driver becomes, how do we keep this thing going? How, how do we keep the institution rolling? How do, how do we keep this moving forward? How do, how do we maintain this institution that we've created and, and the passion and the anointing and the power have largely dissipated? And, and eventually, what can, what can happen is that the machine can then become a monument, a monument to, to past glories. Oh, remember the good old days when God was moving and, do, and doing this. Like, and, and in the end, things can begin well. They can begin with great intentions, great fanfare, and if left unchecked, they can actually become an empty shell of themselves when, when we lose the why behind what it is that we're doing. It just becomes something we're uh, just, just an empty ritual, an empty tradition. And, and so as, as we kind of close our time this morning, I want to remind us of something that Jesus often warned the religious folks about, where, where he, he would say, all right, I don't want you doing things just to appear religious or appear spiritual, but it actually lacks the heart of God in them. Like Jesus is, he's, Jesus is not concerned with, with our acts whatsoever, but it's the fruit of the Spirit that he's looking for. The Pharisees, they may have been doing all the right things. They've may be, they've been, they were doing the spiritual things. They were doing the things that, that may have appeared right, trying to keep themselves clean, free from from sin, free from anything that was even close to sin. But what they were lacking was the fruit of the Spirit in their life. They kept the law, but they missed the point of the law. They kept the law, but they lost sight of the people by which the law was meant to to help and to be a a blessing. And, and, And so the final point I want you to write down this morning is this thought, is that relationship always... Trump's tradition, preferences, opinions, always. 
One of the things that I love about Living Stones is that we have people here from all different faith backgrounds and church experiences. We, we have former Catholics here. I'm, I'm, I'm one of them. We have folks from, from the Church of Christ where LSC got its, its start, where, where it got its beginning from. We have people here who are from a more charismatic Pentecostal background. God has brought people from mainline denominations, from evangelical denominations. God, God has brought people here who have no church background whatsoever. And I love that as a church body, we, we, we've been able to accept and embrace people who have maybe slightly different views than, than we have, whose traditions and experiences and, and preferences may be different than our own, and that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing, because th- think, of, think of what eternity with God is going to be like. It's going to be filled with people that have different experiences and different traditions and different uh, preferences than we have. And it's a beautiful thing when God takes this giant, to use that melting pot metaphor, and puts it all together. Because at the end of the day, God wants relationship and not religion. He wants relationship and not opinions and not preferences. He, we, like we, we can have our traditions. We can have our, our preferences and our opinions. And many of them are great. Many of them point us towards God. But let us never elevate and substitute them for real and actual relationship with God. Not letting them become a stumbling block to us fellowshipping and having relationship and loving other people. That unity is where the Lord bestows blessings on us. Like we might not always see eye to eye, but we can still walk hand in hand and arm in arm. Second, Second Timothy chapter 2 Verse 23 and 24 says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. I love this verse. You know that they will breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Like, like what, what's being written here is, all right, there, there's, there's an endless number of things that, that, we, that, that we can be divided over. There's an endless number of things that we can have our opinions and our preferences and our traditions over. And, 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 and what Scripture's saying, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies that just, it, it gives life to just quarrels, division. And my, my prayer for us as a church is that, that we would set aside anything that would become a distraction walk away from things that cause division and cause separation from one another, but we would be one, united in spirit around what God has called this church body to do. And we can choose. Like, we can choose rules or relationship. And, and my prayer is that we're going to choose wisely. We're going to always choose relationship over rules, relationship over tradition, relationship over preference. So if you would, bow your heads. Let me just pray for us this morning. And Lord, I, I thank you, God, for, God, just your amazing love. Thank you for the way that you have brought your people together, Lord, that, the people from such vastly different backgrounds and experiences, Lord, and the way, God, that you are moving in our midst, Lord. And, and God, thank you for those traditions, those things that we have that, that remind us of you and remind us who you are and what it is that you've done in our lives. But Lord, I also pray that you would help us never to elevate our traditions, to a place where it causes pride, where it causes us to look down on others or, or, or to manipulate other people into doing what we want them to do. 
But God, that, that we would hold on to those traditions with an open hand of recognizing, all right, it, it's never a substitute for true, real relationship with you. And God, that we would be a, a body, we would be a church that embraces one another, that embraces difference, that, em, that embraces different thoughts and experiences and traditions and backgrounds, Lord. That at the end of the day, we're not, we're not going to have those petty, small disagreements and quarrels, Lord, but in the end, that we would be united together behind what it is that you called us to do, to be that light reflecting you to all people. Lord, I pray you bless my church family this today. Lord, that you would continue to move in our midst, Lord, and we just love you, and we thank you, God, so much for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple weeks ago, I made a little mistake at work. It was a minor mistake, nothing big, but as I was correcting the mistake and the circumstances around it, I was being what I like to call loving, lovably obnoxious. Um, I was blaming phantom circumstances like evil Sarah Robot got out or telling people, you know, mark your calendars and put this on there because it's so rare when I make a mistake and things like that. You know, just being adorable. And my administrator asked me, how did your parents raise you that you have so much confidence? And I looked at her with surprise because I know my insecurities. And she continued, you act like everyone should want to know you, that people are stupid if they don't want to be your friend. <laughs> so I thought for a few moments and I said, people are stupid if they don't want to be my friend because <laughs> I'm delightful. Now, obviously, a lot of this is tomfoolery is, is an act, a way of masking my insecurities by being what I call lovably obnoxious. Though at the same time, part of me does think, who wouldn't want to be my friend? I'm enchanting. <laughs> However, I do have a high emotional quotient, and I'm keenly aware of my many faults. And I want to stop and just have you think of how brand that is for me, that I am complimenting myself on knowing my many faults. Um, now, I will give my parents credit or blame in help shaping my personality, so if you have complaints, there they are. <laughs> Be gentle on them. <clears throat> but one such blessing to me was I was raised with the focus of understanding who I am in Jesus. As I've gotten older, I've listened to so many people who have um, professed constant guilt or spiritual trauma. And I realized that people are taught to believe that their fundamental main identity is that we are sinners in need of a savior. And you might hear this and think, yeah, that's, that's correct, that's true. But the focus is on sinfulness, the mistakes, depravity. And common theology helps support that. Man, Adam marked us with sin, and current theology created the doctrine of original sin. We emphasize the sinful nature. However, I argue that is never what Jesus focuses on, and he is opposed to us focusing on it. If we remember the creation story, God made humanity and said, it is very good. Our originality is not sinfulness, but goodness. Sin is our reality, but it is not our identity. Our identity has been formed through the covenant we have in God who will not fail us and who will not abandon us. 
Because of a crucified Christ, we can stand in confidence that we are beloved, that we are victorious, that we are strong, and that we belong to a king who holds us in everything. And perhaps you'll have better judgment than me and refrain from being lovably obnoxious, but you could absolutely have confidence in knowing who wouldn't want to know you? Who wouldn't want to be around you? You're a king's treasure. Right now is a time we set apart in our service to celebrate the covenant, to actively participate in knowing that this covenant was not just for those people of the past, but is a promise still today. And this act of celebration is open to everyone here today, and you are all welcome to participate. The prayer that I'll pray before communion is actually written by Jane Austen. Give us grace to endeavor a truly Christian spirit, to seek to attain that temper of forbearance and patience which our blessed Savior has set at the highest example, and which, while it prepares us for spiritual happiness in a life to come, will secure us the best enjoyment of what this world can give. Incline us, so God, to think humbly of ourselves, to be severe only in the examination of our own conduct, to consider our fellow creatures with kindness, and to judge all they say and do with a charity that we would desire from them ourselves. Amen.